under C.J. Mahaney, and that week was um, a tremendous blessing and encouragement uh, to both of us, learning from a, a seasoned pastor about the pastoral ministry. And uh, one thing he highlighted to us was the importance of the pastoral prayer. And um, Spurgeon said that if he had the opportunity to preach ten times or to pray once for his congregation, he would choose prayer. Um, Because when man preaches, man works. When man prays, God works. I I have noted that I have often neglected pastoral prayer because of an incomplete view of myself, because my identity was not fully formed by the scriptures. I had seen myself too much as a sheep, as a member of the flock, and that is who I am. I'm a member of this church. I am a sinner saved by grace. At the same time, by God's mysterious design, by God's mysterious unfathomable providence he has made me a pastor of this church and to that end therefore I must fulfill though at times I am very uncomfortable uh, the function the role of a pastor of Christ Church at Cornerstone therefore it is incumbent upon me to pray and not just pray but pray as a shepherd pray as a pastor pray with um, authority uh, pray with um, confidence and pray with intimacy. God has given me uh, the privilege and the joy to pray for you and um, shepherd you via prayer. So I, I, I regret my neglect in this area over the years. Dan and I and Bob also, we, we seek to uh, make up for lost time by praying lengthy prayers on Sundays, and hopefully uh, it'll, it'll build up our church. And we will say that the, the building up of Cornerstone is really the result of prayer and the Spirit of God working. So um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we are reminded this morning that you are the chief shepherd that you are um, the one who cares for this flock here at Cornerstone. We are reminded that the elders, pastors, all the leaders here, we are weak, frail, men who are inadequate in every way. But God, this is why you've given us this privilege, this honor of approaching the king's throne, apart from Christ, no one dare approach you, for the only end would be death, complete separation, banishment forever. But Lord, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, we who were sinners we're made righteous. Lord, not only that, you've adopted us as your sons, therefore you invite us to come to you. And as we approach you, you have ordained under shepherds who will feed, tend, and shepherd the flock of God. 
So Lord, with this in mind, I come to pray for the flock here at Cornerstone. And I uniquely know that many here are carrying burdens. They are carrying weight of sin, the burden of temptation, heartaches, disappointments, sorrows in this world with themselves, their families, work, people in the world. They also carry burdens and cares that's, that's in this world with finances and health and just many personal issues. God, we are so frail and weak. But Lord, our hearts are lifted this morning. For we have come to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. That it is not ourselves and our holiness or righteousness or discipline. It is Jesus Christ his death and resurrection, his ascension and the truth that you are at the right hand of the Father's throne looking upon us and praying for us. And so I pray that your people will look to you this morning and so their faces will be radiant. They'll be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, that we are but pilgrims, that we are just on a journey. We are passing through we're going on to the city of God where on, on that day there will be no more mourning, crying, sorrow, or pain. The old order of things will have passed. The new will have come. You will wipe away every tear. And Lord, we will see you with our own eyes for we shall be as you are, holy and righteous. So I pray, O oh God, that your spirit would empower our hearts this morning. And you will grant them such faith, bold, courageous, um, stubborn faith that would put aside their worries, put off and cast away the sins of the flesh. Lord, resolute in their hearts not to waste this holy hour, but to be alert to this great privilege and opportunity that we have to hear from your holy scriptures. Lord, that we would honor you by our, our attentiveness to you when you speak. And Lord, through your word and the gospel that is proclaimed this morning, we pray that each person here will be transformed. They will experience um, the, the fresh blowing of the Spirit. They would experience uh, quickening of the heart, opening of the eyes, illumination, insight into the scriptures. Where, oh God, uh, we will be able to uh, carry this water home and walk in a manner worthy of Christ this day and this coming. God, we uh, thank you for Cornerstone. We thank you for this church. You are building her up and using her as a as a large a shelter for so many people and so many different kinds of people as they come from near and far, from, with, from, with, from different walks of life, we pray that you would use your people to, to welcome and accept and receive them as you have received us. 
And in this way, O oh God, that you would use Cornerstone uh, as an ambassador for Christ, for believers and for unbelievers, here and far, all to your glory. God, we just uh, we commit uh, I'm to you now. Lord, I ask for your help to faithfully uh, proclaim and herald this message uh, from your scriptures. We ask for your help that in spite of my weaknesses, Lord, through the Spirit, your people will understand and be in awe and amazed and marvel and be filled with joy. And God, we will walk out as changed people with your glory radiating from our faces because we have beheld your face to the cross and we have seen your glory and uh, it was sweet to us. We thank you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open to Galatians chapter 3. And we will study this morning, starting verse 19. And we're going to read all the way to verse 29. But I expect our study to focus just to verses 19 through 23. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Please be seated. I believe I shared two weeks ago that we're entering into a very complex portion of the scriptures, particularly Galatians 3 and 4, where it deals with this a complex issue, the relationship between the law and the gospel, Law and grace, law and promise, the law and our Christian life, law and preaching, law and ministry. We have used that quote several times in our study where Pastor Piper said, 
this has been the most vexing issue, most difficult issue for him in 40 years of ministry. For me, studying it for the past few months, I've learned so much. It has been a stretching time for me in terms of my mind and also my heart. And um, I pray and hope that our study through Galatians 3 will be a beginning for you. It would not complete your study on this issue of the law and the gospel. It would be something that sparks your interest for uh, the Bible testifies to us that this issue is important to us. And more we understand it, the result will be freedom. The more you understand it, the result will not be just greater knowledge, greater understanding, greater just understanding of the information. The practical result for you as a Christian would be freedom from guilt and shame and all your quirks and all your baggage and all the things that enslave you and keep you bondage, all the temptations that entangle you and impede you and slow you in your Christian race. A greater insight into how we are no longer under the law of Moses and are now free and under the law of Christ will result in that kind of freedom where, in that kind of freedom where um, you're playing an instrument and you're just lost in that moment that you forget that you are playing. You're just enjoying that music. The freedom when uh, you're playing sports, right? I wouldn't know about this. Maybe Joe can tell us. But you're playing sports and everything becomes effortless. The basket looks like it's, you know, 50 feet uh, um, in diameter. Everything is going and you're lost in the enjoyment of the game and you're free. Fear and anxiety is gone, right? And most of you can identify with this. You're enjoying a meal <laughs> and it is so good. You're not counting calories, <laughs> Right? You know, away with the calories, right? You're just enjoying that meal. You're lost in it. And uh, you're just experiencing that sweetness of that time. Um, that'll be the result of you studying this. There are some things, I, you know, I don't, I don't go, come up here and ask you to study pre-trip, post-trip, you know, pre-wrath theories on the rapture. You know, the millennial issue, it is important, but I don't come up here recommending books for you to study the millennial issue, the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the book of Revelation. Uh, dispensational theology versus covenantal theology, very important, but I'm not, I don't want to rally around that and have you immerse yourselves, but, but this study is important because I, I want to experience that freedom. Where I want to, and that will allow me to serve God and, and follow God with joy. And I want you to experience that freedom. Now, there are several books that have been helpful to me in my study. There are a few that are very, not very, there's some, some are more complex, some are more for seminary students, professors. And you read all of that, and like it says, like what these small books say. So uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't bring them with me. This is probably the most technical book. That is, um, 
for those of you who have some time in your hands and want a greater understanding, it's been very helpful to me. Jason Meyer's book, The End of the Law, uh, past two weeks while I was traveling, I took this book with me and it helped me to fall asleep. <laughs> right? You're on a plane, you want to go to sleep, open this book and it'll do its work. But if you have some coffee with you and you're alert, this book is a great read, great help for you to understand how Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. Uh, second book is uh, by Philip Ryken, Written in Stone. Um, this is his exposition of the Ten Commandments and how it relates to our society and, and us as Christians. There is a role of the law for our society. Without the law, our society would be chaos. It would be might makes right, the one with the gold rules, right? It would be survival of the fittest in society, in a family. The, the Ten Commandments are very important. Honor your father and mother. My, my children know that. Very important for society. But for the Christian, it has a different dynamic. We can't apply the Ten Commandments that you would do for society like matter, do it to a Christian. If you do, then you will enslave that Christian. You will pummel that Christian. You will, you'll, you'll lead that Christian astray. You're not using the law lawfully if you do that. And Riken does a great job of explaining that. Uh, a real, you know, one of those like, uh, you know, book, computer for dummies or like, you know, architecture for dummies. I don't know, right? This, that kind of book, right? Really helpful to me. 40 questions about Christians and biblical law, right? So you just have to look up the questions that you want to want answered, and it's there. And there's a very good job, uh, except for one, and I'll tell you later which one, uh, on answering these questions. Thomas Schreiner, I, I'm using his commentary for Galatians, and very helpful as well. 40 questions, I would highly recommend this. If you want your heart stirred, you want like a brave heart version of study of Galatians, this is the one, right? Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. It'll encourage you, excite you, inspire you. You'd want to go stand somewhere. <laughs> you want to make a stand for something after you read this book. Highly recommend it to you. Something more devotional in nature is Holiness by Grace by Brian Chappell, right? Chappelle Chappell. Um, I heard both. Um, great book about Law and gospel and how we ought to live, more devotional, more practical. An uh, excellent book for you as well. Now, you've heard all of this and you, you didn't write any of them down because you know you have, books, you have too many books to read anyways. right? Your Kindle is free. Your iPad is full of books that you've gotten, you have, haven't gotten to, so you're just not, not going to jump in. Well, then you've got to jump in for this one. <laughs> right? Come on. So how many pages is this? Well, it's 80 pages, but, but real, pretty much good-sized font. 450 at Amazon.com, right? 450. Very economical. And Eugene actually uh, read this. He bought it for his care group. And Eugene, he's never done, I, as far as I can remember in, in, his, in my life, he bought me a present. <laughs> he actually gave me something. I've been giving him spiritually his whole life. No, I'm just kidding. He's giving me things, but... I can't remember, but he gave me this book. He gave me this book, so I said, well, i got to read this. I read it, and it is a great book. Now, where has this book been my whole life? If I had this book two years ago, 
then you guys wouldn't have been confused for the past two years. Right? <laughs> and I am not exaggerating. I am, I am serious. You read this book and it'll answer your questions. If it doesn't answer your questions, I can't help you. Right? No one can help you. Right? He does such a great job on law and grace. Scripturally and how we are to live in light of gospel-centeredness. So please read this. Right? This is so important. I'm proposing uh, we're going to make this our FOF book. Right? We're going to make all of our new members read this. I'm going to, so please get it. If you don't, we're going to try to get a book library and uh, have it uh, lent, lent out to you. I bought, there were 13 copies left in Amazon. You're going to have to wait. I bought out all of them. And I'm gonna, we're giving it out to all our care group leaders and ministry leaders tonight in our 115 fellowship. So please, please read this. Okay, now to our study. Galatians 3, 19 through 26, Paul here answers two questions. Two questions. He had been talking about the law and, you know, one of the sermons I will do, maybe maybe sooner than later, is I'm going to preach a sermon upholding the law, honoring the law of God. The, the law of God, we're kind of like putting it down in this context because that's what Paul is doing. But really, apart from salvation and sanctification, the law is righteous and good, as Paul said. The law is holy. The law is not weak. The law is good. The, the, the reason it doesn't work is because of our sinfulness. It's not God's fault. It's not the law's fault. It's us. So I'm going to do a whole sermon on the law of God, how it was given by God. It was written on tablets of stone, highlighting its permanency. It was written with his finger, and it is it is eternal. It is, 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 it's, it's continual. It is God's law for, for eternity to his people. It was given by God. It, is, it endures forever. True believers, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, love the law. And so we are to honor it. We are to love it. We are to run in the path of its commands. So hopefully we're not uh, misconstruing an idea or misleading you on the idea of the law. The law is good. The reason Paul, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but quote unquote highlights the, the negative aspects of the law or denigrates the law is because what the Judaizers have done and are doing. They are using the law unlawfully. Right? They're using the law uh, in a way that it, it's not helpful. In fact, it's hurtful. It is uh, doing damage. It's destroying people, believers' lives. It's supplanting grace. It's removing Christ from the throne. They are seeking to be righteous by works of the law. That is why Paul is um, denigrating the law, but he's not denigrating the law. He's denigrating their theology of the law. Um, so as he has done this, uh, he raises um, 
two common questions, right? Two common questions um, that are raised in the law. Well, let's do a quick review. Galatians 3, um, Galatians 2, um, Paul's teaching the law has been emphatic, relentless, and exclusionary. Chapter 2, verse 16, he flat out says, no one will be justified by works of the law. It is an impossibility. Anyone in the Old Testament who has been righteous before the sight of God has always been by faith and not by works. In verses 2, 18 and 19, they're accusing him of promoting uh, licentiousness, antinomianism, of being a violator, a transgressor of the law. And Paul says, no, that's not the truth. The real transgressor of the law is someone who tears down and builds it back up. These Judaizers, they're the true sinners because they are, verse 21, nullifying the grace of God. Anyone who promotes the law for the Christian, it's not a minor issue. It's not a trivial doctrinal error. It is heresy. It is false teaching. It is blasphemy. You are nullifying grace. You are an anathema. You are cursed by God. Because you're saying Christ died for no purpose. Verse 21. Then in chapter 3, he appeals to the experience of the Galatian believers. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith in Christ? After that, he appeals to Abraham's experience. The patriarch, the founder of the nation of Israel. What was his experience? And he gives chapter and verse, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. Galatians 3, 6. Abraham trusted in God and that faith was counted to him Reckon to him as righteousness. Then the who are the sons of Abraham? Who are the ones that receive this blessing that Abraham received? Verses 7 through 9. Anyone who believes along with Abraham in God. They are the true sons of Abraham. Your ethnicity does not matter. Right? Your socioeconomic status does not matter. Your gender does not matter. Anyone who trusts in God, God counts to you righteous. God accepts you. God approves of you. God loves you. And then in verse 10, he points out that uh, righteousness, justification by faith, is not a better option. It's not 1A and 1B. Right? It's not you know high grade and low grade. No, it is either you're blessed or you are cursed. Right? There is no option. Either you are righteous by faith. If you seek to be justified before God through works, you are condemned. You're condemned by God, verse 10. And that is why Christ was condemned. That is why Christ was suspended in the air and he died hanging there. Fulfillment of prophecy also 
to be judged as a man who was cursed by God according to Leviticus. Why? By dying in that manner, he was taking our curse. He was taking the condemnation, judgment that belonged to us. And he received it. And so the apostles went out of their ways to make the point that Christ hung on a tree. Christ hung on a tree. Our Lord, Savior, Jesus hung on a tree. Why? To show that he took our curse. And we received his righteousness. And then our last study, verses 15 through 18, um, Paul gives a human illustration, a human example, a legal setting, inheritance laws. He says, once a promise, once inheritance promise has been sealed, has been ratified, either party cannot unilaterally annul that promise or add to it. That's in a human legal setting. That's the reality. Right? Once it's been signed, once the contract has been ratified, you can't annul it, you can't add to it. Uh, my mom um, got into a car accident a few weeks ago, and uh, I had to buy her a used car. Went to a dealership uh, last weekend to buy a car for her, buy a used car. And they were telling me, straight up, an honest Honda dealer, saying, in, in California... There is no warranty for used cars. Once you sign that contract, unless you buy a two-day optional warranty for $250, once you sign that contract, the car is yours. There is, a, there is no, no lemon law in California. It's yours. So there you can't return it five minutes later or five days later. Right? Once you sign it, it's over. Well, likewise with this contract with God. When God in Genesis 15 cut the deal and walked through those animals, he made a unilateral promise to Abraham. And then God didn't have buyer's remorse. God didn't say two years later, Abraham, you, you lied about your wife. Or your children. Your children are liars, Right? Man, your grandkids are like awful. They're out of control. No, I want to uh, add an addendum to this uh, contract, right? And add some laws. No. God ratified that contract. And in fact, it wasn't five days or five years past. 430 years passed after the promise was given when God gave his law in Sinai. All right. You would think... Um, expired any any time allowance for the contract to be annulled or, or, or modified have long since passed especially when it was ratified paul is giving a human example that in a human contract this is not viable therefore all the more not so with god paul's argument is clear Man is justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. Then this raises two questions. The first question is, verse 19, why then the law? Why did God give the law? If we are not justified by the law, if we, are not, if we don't receive the Holy Spirit, and that has nothing to do with the law, if Christ was cursed because of the law, and if our very inheritance of God's promise to Abraham 
is dependent not on the law, but on the promise, then why the law? It's pointless. It's unimportant. Uh, it's unnecessary. Um, they are taking Paul's argument to the furthest limits. Paul, you're saying law doesn't justify, then you're saying the law is completely unimportant. Right? Why did God give us the law in the first place? They accused him in Acts 21:28 of antinomianism. Right? Paul had brought the, the gifts of the Macedonian churches to the church in Jerusalem, and the Jews there arrested him. They said, this man speaks against our people and our law. There's, Paul is saying, um, the law is completely pointless. Now here, today's sermon is uh, filled with quotes by Luther, and, and he's so helpful. He, said, he says here in his commentary, It is not only foolish and ignorant people, but also those who seem to themselves to be very wise, who argue that if the law does not justify, it is useless. But that does not make that claim true. Money does not justify or make us righteous, but that does not mean it is useless. Our eyes do not justify us, but that does not mean they must be plucked out. Our hands do not justify us, but that does not mean they must be cut off. So also the law does not justify, but that does not mean it is useless. We must allow each thing its own use. So we do not destroy or condemn the law because we say that it does not justify us. But we give a different answer to the question, what purpose does the law serve? So we are saying the law does not justify, but just that point alone, but not anything beyond that. The law in redemptive history, in God's plan of salvation, had a very important role, had a very important function. It was added, Paul said, because of transgression. Right? It was added because of transgression. There are 33 different Greek words for sin. Right? All those 33 words are rooted in 10 key Greek words for sin. Of those 10 words for sin, the first two are found majority of the times. The first word for sin is hamardia, right? Uh, we got hamardiology. It's uh, Romans 3.23. It's the idea of missing the mark, falling short. All have sinned, hamardia, and fallen short of the glory of God, right? In terms of God's perfect standard, all of us fall short. We miss the mark. There is nothing there in that word intrinsic of intentionality, of willfulness, of purposefulness. It is that because we are sinners, we cannot be righteous. We cannot be perfect. We always miss the mark. The second word for sin is parabeseo. Parabeseo. And this word is the word found here, trans. Aggression. And it characterizes sin as a breaking of a moral law, 
turning from the perfect will of God. And the central thought of this word is that of willful disobedience of a known law. Right? Willful disobedience. It is overstepping. It is violation. It is intentional. It is willful. It is high-handed. Right? Different words and highlights different kinds of sin. I mean, it happens with our kids all the time, right? Our kids, you know, I, my servant says, James, you're kind of negative on our kids. And so, I, want you to know, I love my children. They're, they're dear. They're the apple of my eye. I love my kids. Maybe you don't know me. You might think I'm, I know, harsh enough. No, I'm, I'm not. I just use them for humor effect and <laughs> illustrations on Sundays. So I love my kids. I'm just using them as an illustration for sin because I shouldn't use you guys, right? That wouldn't be right. So they're the only safe people, and they're still young enough where they don't take it personally. Once they get older, I'll stop. But right now, it's okay. So they commit two kinds of sins. One is sins of ignorance, right? So I say, you know, Ethan, why did you do that? I don't know. Ethan, what were you thinking? I don't know. Right? Eleanor, why did you hit your sister? I'm not sure, right? <laughs> And so they do things that, are, that do not make sense, that are not willful, intentional. And you know what happens? Especially if I'm like correcting Ethan or Emma, Eleanor comes running with the rod. Right? <laughs> she opens the door. Here, Daddy. Here you go. Let me help you. True story. Right? My little helper. Um, but as parents, if it's, you know, they're just kids, they're just foolish, they're being impulsive, it's, they didn't know that you're not supposed to hit your sister right, at 3 in the afternoon on a summer day, then our, our response is, is measured. But if it's intentional, it's willful, it's premeditated, we just told them right, not to do this, and they do it, then our response is different. Well, that is what God is talking about. God gave the law to Israel so that they might know the boundaries. They might know no trespassing. No, don't cross these lines. So that they would knowingly violate God's laws. They could not plead ignorance. Right? They could not plead, oh, you know, it was just um, a mistake or it was an accident. They didn't mean it. God explicitly codified his, his will to them so that they might know this and knowingly violate these truths, and they themselves would experience that guilt firsthand before a holy God. They might have no excuse. Romans 3, 2.23, You who boast in the law, you boast that you know the law, yet you dishonor God by breaking that law. Now, interpretive issue here, uh, in verse 19, uh, law was given because of sin. Is it to restrain sin, to curve sin? Is it to hold back sin? Is it the civil use of the law? Right? Law is given to hold, to keep people from sinning. Is that the idea here? Or is the spiritual idea? The law was given to provoke people to sin, to increase sin to multiply sin, which is the right interpretation. 
And there's so much here, and I don't want to, like, you know, drown you with information. Um, the context tells us that Paul is talking not about the civil use of the law, but the spiritual use. If Paul meant here, grammatically, it can go both ways. Right? Because of Karin, uh, it, it can legitimately be used both ways, but the context is king, interpreting you know, anything, interpreting scripture especially. And the context tells us Paul means here uh, increasing sin, not curbing sin, because that's what the Galatian Judaizers were saying. We need the law to restrain these Gentiles from sin. Paul, do you know these, these Gentiles? They're barbarians. They're animals. They're people filled with lust. They, have never, they grew up like wild animals without the law, and they become Christians. Therefore, they need the law of Moses to hold them back from sinning against God in, in countless ways. That's the argument of the Judaizers. So if Paul says here the law was given to restrain sin, then he is actually agreeing with the Judaizers. That makes no sense whatsoever. Paul is a clear, coherent articulator of law-gospel dynamic. He w- would not say that. What he is saying is law was given Karin for the purpose of transgressions, to increase sin and... Uh, the parallel passage of Romans 5.20 heightens and, and affirms this interpretation. Uh, Romans 5.20, um, law came in to increase the trespass, right, to increase it. Right. Uh, Paul, later on, two chapters later in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, uh, uses a personal example of how this took place. Right? He would not have known what covetousness was until God said, do not covet. When the law came, I died because the law produced in me all kinds, like overwhelming covetous desires. Is the law sinful? Why is God tempting me? We think about that. Why did God make this sin? I enjoyed this sin. Right? Why did God prohibit it? Well, it seems so arbitrary. In fact, because of that prohibition, prohibition, we wanted more. It's God's fault. And Paul says, no, it's not God's fault. It's because we are sinners. The law is holy and good. It's us. The law was given to increase trespass. So that it would destroy our self-confidence. It will destroy any semblance of self-righteousness. It was given so that it would pummel us to the ground. And it would cause us to be poor in spirit. It would cause us, Sermon on the Mount, to, to hunger and long for a foreign righteousness. An alien righteousness that is found in, in God alone. So there is two uses. The law curbs sin before man. Right? So in a, in a civil, the civil use of the law, it does restrain sin. I was driving through Gaithersburg during our class and driving at night with four, past, four other pastors and there was like lightning on the street. And we looked back. There's not a cloud in the sky. What is this lightning? 
and it wasn't lightning. It was a speed camera catching me. I was driving like 10 miles over the speed. I had no idea. I'm like, what happened? I got a ticket. Man, I better be careful. <laughs> Three days later, same street. Lightning again. <laughs> Another ticket. It's like Homer Simpson moment. Don't. <laughs> oh, man, what happened? Right? Laws are given to curb sin. Rightfully so, but not spiritually. Spiritually, the law curses man before God. It condemns man before God. That's the use of the law. That's why law was given. Not to help us. Not to keep us from sinning. The law was given to condemn us, to curse us, to, to reveal to us the limitless depths of our sinfulness, our depravity, our unrighteousness. Without the law, we would think we're little sinners. With the law, we, are, we realize more and more that we are we're giant sinners, ever-growing every day. Martin Luther, proper function of the law, Right, Luther said the proper function of the law is to accuse us and reveal sin so as to strike terror into our conscience so that we feel God to be offended and angry and ourselves to be guilty of eternal death. Here the poor afflicted sinner feels the intolerable burden of the law and is beaten down in despair, being oppressed with great anguish and terror. He desires death or else seeks to destroy himself. The law is the hammer that breaks proud and obstinate hypocrites. Amen. That's why the law was added for the purpose of transgressions, to increase sin. And it's limited in scope. It's not permanent for for God's people, for Christians. The civil use is eternal, right? The the moral law of God is forever. But for believers, there is an end to the law, Romans 10.4. Christ is the end to the law for for us, to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 19b, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So the law for believers was for a short duration until Christ would come and we would believe in him. He is speaking of historical sequence here. The law was never intended for believers to be enforced forever. It is subordinate to what God had promised. The law's jurisdiction has ended because Christ has come. So for Paul, the cross was a cataclysmic event, right? It was a new era had begun. Right? There was the era of promise. Four to 30 years later, the law was given. And on the cross, he became the end of the law to those who believe. And it, at that instant, the veil was torn in two that separated the most holy place in the temple top to bottom. And it was God accepting the sacrifice of His Son and acknowledging that He had lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life and He died and God accepts that ransom payment. 
And so he frees all those who are held captive under sin's law to those who trust in Christ. And that veil was torn and a new era has begun. When the promised offspring arrived, the law's jurisdiction ended. The law was always intended as an interim arrangement. The law began at Mount Sinai. It ended on Mount Calvary. It ended on Mount Calvary. Martin Luther again, the principal purpose of the law in theology, sorry, is to make men not better but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of their sin, they may be humbled, frightened, wore down, worn down. And so they will long for grace and long for the blessed offspring. So Paul's saying the offspring has come, that is Jesus. God made this promise to Abraham and to the single offspring, and that is Christ. And the heir of that promise has come. Therefore, we are to leave the law and run to the promise. That is by faith. He is just highlighting in responding to this question, why did the law, the inferiority, the secondary nature of the law as the promise? And then he continues with this perplexing phrases in the end of verse 19 and verse 20. Furthermore, the law is inferior to the gospel, inferior to, the, to grace, on how it was transmitted to God's people. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20, not an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I've uh, I read up on this. It makes sense to me. We don't have the time to go in, in depth. It, it just highlights what Exodus 19, Psalm 68, Hebrews 2 tells us that though God wrote the law in tablets of stone, and wrote it with his own finger, it was mediated to Moses by angels. Because Moses couldn't approach God and see his face, for he would die. And these tablets of stone were given to the people through an intermediary of Moses. So if you are an Israelite sitting, you know, standing there on Mount Sinai, right, uh, thousands of years ago, you received the law through two intermediaries. But not so the promise of God. When God gave the promise to Abraham, it was direct. God appeared in person and he spoke to Abraham and gave him the promise. So just by how it was delivered and God specified it, it shows um, the priority of the promise as opposed to the law. Right. There were two intermediaries for the giving of the law, but the promise was given directly. Now verse 21 is the law. The second question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Right. Okay, this is, uh, this is hard. Right. Is the law right, contrary to the promise of God? Because that I mean, I think this is one of the questions that people had maybe a year or two ago. Right. 
it, it sounded to some that we were creating an antithesis. The Bible and the gospel. The law and Jesus Christ. And that's the question. Is the law against the promises of God? Um, if you... If you, if you understand it wrongly, it looks like a contrast. If you understand the law wrongly, if you are using the law unlawfully and you see the law as an aid to your salvation, you see the law as a help to you to restrain from sin, right, to grow in sanctification, then it is contrary to the promise of God. You will have this tension in your heart. Uh, you have this tension, and it will result in, ultimately, I believe, uh, despair and anger. Because if you believe that your position, your standing, your sanctification is contingent upon your works, you will soon realize and ask yourself, how good is good enough? How much do I have to pray for me to overcome sin? How much do I have to read the Bible? How faithful must I be? How holy, how pure, how righteous must I be to be to have assurance of salvation and to grow as a Christian? Once you get in that, um, that mindset, it'll be uh, a downward spiral where it'll result in despair, anger, judgmentalism, criticism, uh, and even just reading a, leading a real hypocritical life, a, 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 a compartmentalized life, private and public. So if you have a law and use it wrongly, it would be, be contradictory. But if you view the law rightly, that's what Paul is saying, certainly not. If you, see, if you see the law temporally, if you see the law in a chronological sequence, if you see the law in view of redemptive history, how God gave the promise, 430 years later he gave the law, Christ came, therefore we are not under the law, but we are under the law of Christ. If you see the law's function and purpose, the lawful use of the law, the temporary nature of the law in its rightful place, if you see it rightly, then you will say, certainly not. The law and gospel are not contradictory. They work in step. They function together. It's a good marriage. We shouldn't divorce this marriage. But it is a marriage where the law has a temporary purpose. And the gospel is forever. We will um, look at verses 22, 23 next time. Two closing thoughts. I, okay, three closing thoughts um, to close our time. Um, first of all, the two uses of the law, civil and spiritual use of the law. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, Paul said, We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right. The law is not laid down for the just. The law is not for us. The law is not for Christians. 
The law is for the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, and sinners, unholy, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine, the law is for them. So, for people in the world, in this world right now, for non-Christians, we uphold the law. We establish the law. We preach the law. I quoted uh, Machen a few weeks ago, how to preach the gospel rightly, we must preach a high view of the law. A low view of the law makes men legalists. A high view of the law makes men seekers after grace. That's why we must call sin, sin. You know, they accuse us of being judgmental. Maybe sometimes they are right. But, but more often than not, is they don't want to be judged for their sins. It is not a politically correct thing to do, but we must preach the law to non-Christians. Preach it where we expose their sinfulness in their sins, but also sin behind their righteousness. Any morality, any goodness they espouse, you must deconstruct and expose their self-centeredness behind their morality. You must preach the law to them so that, it, that they might see themselves as greater sinners. And you want to intensify that. You want to grow that in their own view. For in that way, it'll make them long after grace of Christ. But for us as Christians, Romans 10.4, the law has ended for us. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you are believing in Christ right now, Christ is the end of the law. Christ fulfilled the law. The law is not for us. You must believe that theologically. That's much easier. Second point is believing that functionally, practically. Uh, Believing that in your heart. I find that so many, for so many Christians, Moses is huge. Right? He's like Brock Lesnar. And then... Ah, Jesus Christ is, I don't know, right? James Shin, I don't know, some small guy, right? And it should be far opposite. For so many, the Moses, Moses looms so large. And why do I say that? Because um, you're so riddled with so much guilt. You're so uh, shame-filled and defeated, you're lacking joy. I lacking joy. Lacking like a heart to take risks. Right? Hard to uh, step out and be bold for Christ. You're afraid. You're anxious. You're filled with doubt. Doubting of yourself, doubting of Christ. You're being blown and tossed by the wind. You live uh, spiritually as a paralyzed person. Because functionally, you're still under the law and the threats. 
right? the condemnation, the curses are in your hearts rather than the grace of Christ. Right? Third and finally, Christ has fulfilled the law. He is the end of the law for us. For us, as men and women who are justified, we are now under the law of Christ. Romans 6.14, Sin shall have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you're under grace. We are under the law of Christ. And so, and read this book, right? Where is that? But read this book. He'll highlight it to you in a more exhaustive way. But people think, oh man, like we're under grace. That means like we're going to be more, we're going to be more nominal Christians. We're going to be, uh, you know, a little more lax, less intense, you know, more casual Christians because this emphasis on grace. You don't realize what you're saying. Being under grace, right? It's, gonna, it's making us more like Christ, more holy, more radical, more righteous. Let me explain it this way. Um, the Matthew 18 parable, let's say someone owed you $10, we're under the law, and you were so angry, you put him to, put him to jail. I come to you with the law. Man, sister, you know, brother, like, God says, be generous. God says, you know, be kind and loving. Now, you sent that guy to jail. Now, his family, his children are going to miss him. and They're going to be in a destitute for $10. Now, that's not right. Now, you should obey the law. Right? God is your judge. God is your authority. You should be do what is right. That's law thinking. What is your under grace thinking? You put that guy in jail for $10? God just forgave you. He just forgave you of $10 billion. You receive that forgiveness of sin. $10 billion. And how can you forget that and turn around and have this grudge and anger for someone who owed you $10? You have no heart? Have you... So for God, the love of our Savior, God sent His Son and forgave you of an enormous debt. Consider what God has done. May it melt your heart and cause you to forgive someone of a $10 debt. Now, which is more powerful? Which is more transformative? And which is more glorifying to God and just more beautiful? Under grace dynamic. So husband and wife, you're having problems in your marriage. right? Under the law, I would tell the husband, love your wife. right? Just love her. (laughs) Just muster it up. Just grin and bear it. Die to yourself. Carry your cross and love her. Even if it kills you, love her. right? And wives, submit to your husbands. Right? die one day, right? Heaven's coming, right? Jesus one day, submit to him, right? Even though you, you just, you're dying, just, just submit to him. That's law. What does grace say? Right. Love one another. This is God in Christ has loved you. 
right? Ephesians 4, to forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. Romans 15, 7, accept one another. Accept your husband just the way he is. He's not perfect. (laughs) Far from it. But how did God accept you? Did God accept you after you became perfect? Or did God know every sin that you have, are, and will commit? And in spite of that, He loved you and He accepted you. That's how you were accepted. In view of that, accept your husband. Husbands, in view of how God has accepted you, accept your wife. Which is going to transform marriage in a greater way? The law or grace? Final illustration is the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. John put this there. And, uh, you know, like, he's the last one to write the Gospels. Mark didn't put it in. Matthew or Luke did it. And he wanted it kept for posterity. He wanted it recorded for Christians. So he thrusts it out of context within his gospel because this is a historical event inspired by the Holy Spirit. It really happened. The story of this woman, she's a prostitute most likely. These men come to stone her and they say, "What, what? the law commands us to stone her. And Jesus says, if anyone has not sinned, cast the first stone. The older men are the first to go, the young single guys, right? 23 to 29 years old. Uh, they're the last ones because they're so proud and self-righteous. They're so zealous for the law. They're the last ones to let go of the stone. He goes to her, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. He's saying, you're under grace. You're under my love. I don't condemn you. That's what Jesus says to all of us right now. Neither do I condemn you. But he's not saying, I condone your sin. Just because he's not condemning us for our sin, doesn't mean he, he, he loves that we're sinning. He's excited. He's happy for us. No, he doesn't condone our selfish living. His heart is go and sin no more. That's the law of Christ. Because he's the only one that doesn't condemn us. We delight in this law that tells us, sin no more, right? And so our heart is not so much to break God's law, but our heart is not to break God's heart because we have this love relationship with Him, right? Which is more powerful? It's the law of Christ, which is more satisfying? It's the law of Jesus. Which is more liberating? It's the law of Christ. If you are a Christian, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Let us leave Moses behind. Let us preach Moses to unbelievers. But let us preach the gospel to ourselves and the law of Christ to ourselves and to one another. Let's pray. If you would stand, much time has passed. I will close our time in prayer. I'll give you a few moments just to pray and respond to the Word of God.
Lord Jesus, we find ourselves on our knees. We find ourselves caught in our sin. We find ourselves with our accusers with stones in their hands, ready to destroy us, to kill us. And on our knees, with tears in our eyes, we acknowledge we are worthy of this death. Like that thief on the cross, we are, we are receiving our just punishment. And yet we look up to the only one who has the right to condemn us. The sinless one, the mighty judge, the only one with the authority and the right to condemn us. And yet instead of a rock in your hand, your hand is wide open receiving us. And you say you do not condemn us. You give us faith to trust in you. You receive us. And you tell us your heart that we will sin no more. That we will leave our life of sin, our self-centeredness, our self-worshipping ways to worship you and to be your child forever. God, what glorious privilege you have given to your people. We heartily say amen and we say thank you. And we, we with hope, trusting in you, seek, oh God, to, to preach this message to ourselves, to believe it, and to walk in its ways. We thank you and we carry this water home. In Jesus' name we pray.